Okay, so beginning in John chapter 4 and verse 7. It says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Turn now to John, sorry, to Luke 9, verse 51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. You may be wondering why we're taking a one more week break from 1 Timothy, but I thought in light of the events going on in the USA right now, that it'd be worth talking about something here. If you're unfamiliar with what's been going on, uh, in many parts of the US, they're experiencing great unrest. There's uh, protests going on, there's riots, there's been looting, uh, there's been property destroyed, uh, people have been severely beaten, uh, there's been murder, uh, and all of this um, in conjunction with what started it all, which was the arrest of a man by the name of George Floyd by four, four police officers. And those of you who know the story know the scene. Um, they, these overly aggressive, power-hungry police officers basically unjustly take this man's life. And um, uh, yeah, so it was quite, it's quite the, quite the scene. And these, there was protests and riots in, in response. And, uh, of course, these protests even made their way to Canada. Even in Calgary, we had one on Tuesday of this week. And one of the slogans was, well, Black Lives Matter. Now, the slogan is meant to communicate, really, to the world that there's a need to stop being prejudiced to one another, to start treating all human life as equal, and embrace one another despite our differences. Now, this is a cry that not only society de desires, but the ch our church and the church of God would desire that as well. So there are prejudices and different things that go on in the society, but ironically and sadly, this is not just a societal issue, this is a church issue. You see, these kind of prejudices and, and different things have gone on since, uh, since the beginning of time with, with God's people. This was too, true in the time of Christ with his disciples. It was true in the early church. Uh, after Christ had been resurrected, and it's true in the church today. So I want to speak to this issue uh, about our response as God's people in this kind of situation. And I first want to really talk about what exclusiveness really is and the different forms it can take. So the different, what exclusiveness really is and the different forms it can take. Now we're going to discover that this in a minute, in the Bible passages I'm going to use, but for one to be really exclusive, to be exclusive, one has to really have a superiority complex. If you're exclusive, you have a superiority complex. And as a result, you tend to treat others as inferior to you. Really, a person who is exclusive doesn't celebrate what makes each individual person unique and distinct. 
like, for example, their ethnic backgrounds they come from, uh, their sense of humor they have, their taste in clothes, um, their upbringing, and so on. And so often we make these differences a barrier to a relationship and how we treat one another. Now, when you have a superiority complex, you'll respond in one of three ways. One, you will tend to make a person an enemy. And you'll see the other person as someone that needs to be removed from your life or pushed away. Or, at the extreme, conquered. Conquered. You can also see, secondly, the person as superfluous. What do I mean by superfluous? Someone who's not a necessity in your life. Someone who's really insignificant to you. And as a result, you either abandon them or disregard them as not being important. Third, you may decide to assimilate somebody. You want to assimilate them, meaning because they're not like you, you need to they need to conform to your standards of life and to your preferences and so on and so forth and your identity in order to be accepted. So assimilation is key to being accepted. Now, like I said, I wish I could say this was only a problem in society, but we need to recognize this is a real problem amongst God's people as well. It can be a real big issue for us. And I want to walk through some scriptures about how this occurred amongst the disciples' lives in the early church and what, what Jesus and the apostles did to correct this. So the first scripture I'm going to read from is Luke 22:14 to 25. Luke 22:14 to 25. Jesus was just hours away from a crucifixion, and he's celebrating the final Passover meal. During this meal, during the final meal of the Passover, where they're doing communion, Jesus predicts one of them would betray him. Now you remember what happened during that time? It says in verse 24 of Luke 22, there rose a dispute amongst the disciples as to which one was going to be the greatest. In other words, there was a superiority complex going on. Now you can imagine why. When they heard the news that one was going to betray, they probably started comparing spiritual resumes as to who was likely going to do it and who was likely not going to do it. And so there was a competition between who had been the most faithful and who, who hadn't been the most faithful and how that was going to play out in the next coming hours. I just, I could just picture it in my mind. Just, you know, uh, John, for example, like turns to Peter and says, you know, Peter, it's probably going to be you because, uh, do you remember that day on the lake in Galilee when you got out of the boat and you took a couple of steps? What happened to you? You started to sink, didn't you? And Jesus had to rescue you. And what did he say to you? He says, you, you know, you lack faith. It's probably going to be you, Peter. And then Peter turns to John and says, Well, hey, John, at least I got out of the boat. Where were you when I did that? You know, things, the kind of conversations like this. These are the kind of superiority complexes they were having as a dispute rose amongst them as to which one was the greatest. How about the tension between the Jews and Samaritans, which we read in our passage this morning? Jesus is on his way to Galilee, and he goes to pass through Samaria. And he's hungry and thirsty, and so he stops at the well. And the woman from Samaria comes to draw water, and Jesus engages her. And let's look at the conversation again. He said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Nah. And therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
The reason for this no dealings with Samaritans, of course, was the long-standing animosity that existed between the two ethnic identities that went back 700 years. You remember the kingdoms divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and Israel with the ten tribes in the north have gone into idolatry. And God says, unless you repent, you're going to be judged. They wouldn't repent, and so the Assyrians come in in 722 BC, and they take out the northern tribes. What happens then is they leave some of the, the Jewish people in the land, but deport most of them to uh, the Assyrian uh, region. What happens then is inter, intermarriage starts to occur, and they produce these quote-unquote half-breeded people, where they were Jew, 50% Jew and 50% Assyrian. And of course, to the pure Jew, the native Jew in the south, in Judah, this was a complete disaster. And this was a, a defiling of the bloodline, so to speak, because they had Gentile blood. And so here, this, this, this animosity has gone on for 700 years. There's also religious differences and other uh, historical events that have created more tension. And so they don't talk to one another. They don't associate with one another. They can't stand one another. They both think they're superior to one another. And so the woman is shocked when Jesus, a Jew, starts to talk to her. And this is the issue going on here. In Luke 9, in Luke 9, uh, when Jesus, you can see the superiority complex really play its way out, both on the Samaritan side and the Jewish side. Um, Jesus is trying to go on to Jerusalem, which means he has to pass through Samaria to get there. He has to go south to get there. Uh, the Samaritans won't let him in because he's Jewish. We picked that up in our, in our verses there. They wouldn't let him in because he was Jewish. The disciples become so irate, they say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Is that, is that what you want us to do? And Jesus, of course, is uh, well, we'll get into his response later, but you can see the superiority, superiority complex on both sides. On one side, um, they want to destroy, uh, Samaritans won't let the Jews in. On the other side, uh, Jesus, um, let me, sorry, let me say this again. On the one side, the Samaritans won't let the Jews in. On the other side, um, the, the um, oh, sorry guys. Yeah, the Samaritans won't let the Jews uh, into their land, and then the disciples want to call down thunder on these guys for doing so. Consider the, the Peter with his ongoing prejudices with the Gentiles. Now the Gentiles, as you know, are people like you and I. So Peter had discriminations against someone like you and me. In Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit is poured upon the Jews and has come to the Samaritans as well. But the Gentiles have not received the Spirit to the, some, the same degree and have not received God's uh, plan of salvation to the same degree. So P God wants Peter to bring the gospel to them. But the thing is, God knew that Peter wasn't quite ready to embrace the Gentile people. So he gives him a vision demonstrating that the Gentiles were to be included in God's plan. And so the first, the, the guy that he goes to is a, name by an, a man by the name of Cornelius, a Roman centurion. And look what he says when he gets there. This is, this is Peter. He, says, he said to Cornelius and his family, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. You know what's incredible about this church? There was no law 
It was not unlawful for a man who was Jewish to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. <laughs> that was the traditions of the, of the culture. That was the traditions of men. As far as I know, there's no Old Testament law saying that you couldn't, that Peter couldn't talk to or uh, visit uh, um, Cornelius. Again, so even after the vision, he basically, um, Peter has it wrong. It wasn't unlawful for this to occur. In Galatians chapter 2, remember the pre-existing uh, uh, prejudices came out again. Um, even though Peter had been used by God, he, uh, he rears his ugly head once more in terms of his superiority to the Gentiles. Uh, Peter had been in Galatia. Uh, by this time, he made it a habit of eating with Gentile people. But things changed when the Jewish missionaries had showed up in, in, in the town. And he, they, uh, when he saw them come in, Peter being Jew, heard the teachings of these Jewish missionaries who believed it was right to observe the, the, the uh, Mosaic law as being part of a follower of Christ. So it was Jesus plus gospel. You have to observe like the food laws and the Sabbath and the you know circumcision, all these things. And so what does Peter do? He breaks away from the Gentile people and starts associating with only the Jewish people, creating, cr creating a huge division in the church there. He succumbed to their influence and began to disassociate due to the peer pressure. One more example. This time the superiority complex doesn't come in terms of ethnic identity and cultural and social norms. It comes in regards to wealth, the difference between the rich and the poor. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul has heard about the divisions and factions that exist in the church there, and they're manifesting themselves during the participation in the Lord's Supper, just like back with the disciples. Who's going to be the greatest? That was a fight during communion. Here we have another fight during the communion services about uh, with uh, divisions and factions. And what's going on there is there's um, the believers back then had large meals, these love feasts that accompanied the communion meal or the communion celebration. And it was during these times that food would be brought to the to the love feasts and uh, so eaten and drank during the uh, the Lord's Supper. What was happening was the privileged and the wealthy were eating and drinking all the food, even to the point they were getting drunk, leaving those who were less fortunate to go hungry. And they weren't hiding it. It was being done right in their presence and then claiming everything in the Lord's name. Talk, thanking him for his forgiveness and talking about, you know, remembering the cross and that he died for them and so on and so forth. And yet they were drunk and being gluttonous in these services and leaving the poor, the unprivileged, hungry. They were making a distinction between the have and the have-nots. And so the superiority complex was not only an issue for Paul, though, to deal with. This was something that James dealt with as well. And hence why in his letter, he had to write this to the church. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show, your, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Again, the distinction in wealth between the brothers and sisters and the Lord was being done within James's context as well. This was a New Testament um, clearly clear issue that was prevalent. So how did God deal with all this prejudice 
and with all this discrimination and the failure to embrace the differences between one another and the uniqueness of each uh, culture and social standing. How did he deal with all this? Well, in the case of the disciples arguing over who's the greatest in Luke 22, Jesus dealt with them through providing them with teaching and instruction that went against conventional thinking. He flipped their understanding right on his head. This is what he said. The one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves? How, how does he deal with this? He says, you want to be great? You want to claim a superior, superiority complex over one another? Let me tell you how I value greatness. You are a servant of one another. You don't disregard someone. You don't try to assimilate them. You, you don't try to conquer them. You serve them. How about when the disciples wanted to call down thunder in Luke, Luke 9? You know what, church? I might have my passages backwards here. I'll have to double check. Maybe it's Luke 22, but I apologize about this. But, uh, when the, but uh, I'll check that later. But when the disciples want to call down thunder, what is his response? Well, in verse 55 of Luke 9, Jesus rebukes them. He rebukes them. To rebuke someone uh, in biblical language is to tell them off, <laughs> to put them in their place, so to speak. He didn't allow it. He, he rebuked them and, and gave them a talking to. In the case of the Samaritan woman in John 4, the, uh, Jesus did it differently. There wasn't a rebuke. He gave an incredible picture of what it was to model how to embrace someone of different culture and religious background. He demonstrated there how the religious, cultural, and social and moral differences were not to be a barrier by entering into a relationship with them and sharing truth with them. He ultimately sat down and, 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 and embraced this, uh, took the time to embrace this this individual to welcome her into a conversation. He ultimately saw the, the value of who she was as a person and took the time to engage her and the differences were of no concern to her, to him. How do you deal with Peter on this? Well, in the case of Cornelius, it's a bit different. He gave him a vision to correct his thinking. But just like the Samaritan woman with Jesus, uh, the Lord asked him to enter into his context to challenge his cultural biases and to cross social and religious barriers. And so he, he made him go to his house. He made him get his hands and feet dirty and get in the, in the midst of everything. In Galatia, when Peter was disassociating with the, uh, the Gentiles there, he had a really humbling experience. He got rebuked in a major way. The Lord didn't do it, but Paul did. And Paul rebuked him publicly publicly in front of everybody. It would have been a humiliating experience. And verse 11 in chapter 2 says, I opposed him face to face because he stood condemned. It was an intense encounter and, he, and Peter couldn't hide. How about the issue in Corinth? How did, how did the, the Lord deal with that? Again, met with rebuke. It came in a form of a letter from Paul. But most incredibly, God dealt with some of the people personally apart from the letter. In 11, chapter 11, verse 30, he says, Do you want to know why many of you are sick and why you're dying in the congregation? It's because God has brought judgment upon you. <laughs> the Lord took it upon himself to take the lives of people who were expressing this, 
uh, tremendous superiority complex. So as you can see, there's no place or for any form of superiority as a follower of Christ. Both the way we think of those in society and within the church body. Now, while some of our prejudices may not be as extreme as the ones I've read, they still exist or constantly want to rear its ugly head in how we view others. And let me just throw out some categories of people to see if you, if you can relate to what I'm talking about. I want you to be honest now between you and God. When I name these individuals or name these situations, you tell me what your first impressions are and your, your natural bent towards them. Okay, first category, Native Indians. Native Indians, how do you view yourself in relation to them? How about the Separatist Party Quebecois people? How about the people of Quebec in general? How do you, how do you view people in Quebec and the Party Quebecois? How about um, immigrants in our cities and close to us who don't want to fully assimilate into the Canadian culture. You know who those people are. You see them regularly. How about those who hold different opinions on COVID than you do? Let me make it less broad and closer to home and to Genesis House. Who makes your hospitality list in our church? Why or why not? Who are you willing to serve? Why or why not? Who is it easy to make time for? Why or why not? Who do you want to become more like you? <laughs> Just so that things will get along, you guys can get along better and more relationally. My sons watch a show called Dude Perfect. And it's hilarious. I love watching it with them. They have a section called Cool Not Cool. It's called Cool Not Cool. And they bring out uh, different uh, gadgets and they have to vote on whether they think the gadget's cool or not cool. But let me ask you this. Within Genesis House right now in the Christian community, who is cool not cool on your list? Why or why not? You see, if we're honest, church, the superiority complex is just not out in the society. It's, in all, it's the temptation is for it to rise up in all of us. But as Christ followers, we're called to a much higher standard. We're called to a higher standard, church. I want to give you two principles that can help us get past this and start serving the Lord in the way He modeled and demonstrated to us. The first one I'd say is this. I want you to remember that every human being has intrinsic value. Every human being has intrinsic value for two reasons. One, we were created in the image of God. And two, God is the source of all life. In Genesis 1.26, he said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Adam and Eve were the first human beings created in the image of God. Every single human being born after Adam is still in the image of God, in his likeness. That was not lost at the fall. We're still in, created in his image. That's a tremendous privilege because no other 
part of creation is created in the image of God. Plants aren't created in the image of God. Animals aren't created in the image of God. We are the only ones who hold that unique privilege. So we have intrinsic value because we're all image bearers. But secondly, we have intrinsic value because God is the one who gave us all life. There's a beautiful verse in Acts 17 and 24 to 28. I've paraphrased this church and I've I've chopped it down to the the main points I want to bring from this verse. It's much lengthier than this. But here's what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Notice the everyone. There's not like uh, an ethnic group over here that's not been given life and one that has. it's, It's every single person has life because the Lord gave it to them. Then he says this, from one man, which is Adam, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. For in him we live and move and have our being. Beautiful verse to understand that God is a source of life and we're image bearers. We're image bearers of him. The second thing we're to remember that I think will really help us is that we are to remember where our citizenship truly lies. To, to avoid having a superiority complex, remember where our citizenship truly lies. You know, I think all of us, or most of us, have passports. And inside the passport, it will say, you are a Canadian citizen. Now, while that's true, that you're a Canadian citizen, and the Lord has no problem with that, for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, there's a different citizenship that we're to be loyal to, that trumps the Canadian citizenship. The truth is, we are all citizens of heaven. We are citizens of heaven, and as a result, we're to live in this world in a way that reflects allegiance to our heavenly king. Look at this beautiful verse in Philippians 3.20. The context here is that Paul is encouraging the Philippians who are going through persecution and have been given, uh, have been received antagonism because of their connection to Jesus. And so he's trying to encourage them while living on this earth to get through that time. And look what he says. Remember, he says, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, you're, you're a Philippian. You, 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 uh, you, that's your identity in terms of like your nationality. Um, but ultimately, you're a citizen of the Lord. You're a citizen of heaven and he is your king. So you you live your life here and now, bringing the Lord's kingdom to this earth, and you represent him. One person who clearly understood this was Abraham. And in Hebrews 11, look what the author says about him. And again, I chopped this verse down. But look at this. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. So again, he's an inhabitant on this earth, but in obedience, he, did, he went somewhere he wasn't going, which was Canaan. For he was looking forward to the city which, with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Admitting he was a foreigner and stranger on earth, he was, he was um, longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God was not ashamed to be called his God. What determined the course of Abraham's actions and his decisions in life? was a belief that although he lived in this world, he was not of this world. He belonged to a different kingdom. He was ultimately loyal to um, 
the Lord. And as his king, there was, it affected the way he lived his life out on this earth. Now, understanding this citizenship thing is very helpful to us in terms of dealing with a superiority complex. Because although our passports may declare us to be citizens of Canada, as followers of Christ, we can never first be an Albertan, then a Canadian, and then a Christian, or a citizen of heaven. We are first and foremost citizens of heaven, and then the other. And as we see by today's sermon, that means that, that, that while we're in the world where it makes huge distinctions between people of different uh, backgrounds and, 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 have, and social customs and so on, that there's no room for that type of behavior in terms of our superiority complex towards other people. There's no room for superiority complexes in his kingdom and as, with him as our king. Jesus modeled that to us in his speech in the way he rebuked others, the way he taught others, the way he gave visions, and in his action, the way he embraced people like the Samaritan woman, and so on and so forth. So that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy the culture we live in, or be different or unique. It just we don't let those things become divisive. The Lord does not want us to set up relational barriers with people because they hold different social, religious, culture, cultural customs than us. And... Um, or that have different uh, senses of humor, or have different peculiar tastes in clothes or food, or have different ethnic identities. Because his love for the world and for those within the church are so great, and that he was willing to die for them and offer salvation, he wants us to break our cultural ties and our preferences and be willing to adjust our identity in order to be a blessing to others. The greatest example of church was Jesus himself, not only the way he embraced someone like the Samaritan woman in this earth, in this earthly life, think about what he did. He was willing, as God, to leave his home in glory, to come down to earth, to become a Jewish man. That's right, a Jewish man. That was his ethnic identity. He was Jewish. We have to remember that Jesus wasn't Canadian. He wasn't um, Filipino. He was Jewish. He was Jewish, and he embraced his identity as a Jew. But ultimately, he knew that the kingdom he came from was from heaven. He was a citizen of heaven. And so he brought God's kingdom to this earth and, and demonstrated as such about how to welcome others into that kingdom. He never set up social and religious and ethnic barriers, no matter what the distinctions were. He welcomed people into his midst. I want to leave you with this passage from Philippians 2. This is the incarnation of Christ coming to earth. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used, but to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Again, a willingness to change identity. <laughs> and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Church, there's a... Four lessons I want us to learn from this passage. Four lessons this morning. And so here they are. Number one, 
in light of what's going on in the U.S. And, and everything that's going on, and also what happens in our church, there's no place for a superiority complex as followers of Christ. There's no place for a superiority complex as followers of Christ. And you know, you may have come in here to the service this morning thinking, I don't have one. But I wonder, I wonder if when I mention the names that I did in the people groups and uh, and the and the and the questions regarding each other in Genesis House, if maybe the Lord has brought people to mind, and maybe prejudice that exist. So I'd ask you in your privacy of your own life today, when the sermon ends and we walk away, that you spend time in confession to the Lord if something has been brought forward. Maybe nothing has been brought forward or no individual came to mind. And so the Lord has done an amazing work in your life because you have become a full citizen of heaven and, and embraced the way he did life. But if you haven't, please take the time to confess those sins. Second lesson. There are times when followers of Christ need to be rebuked when giving in to their superiority complex. Jesus did it. He rebuked the uh, disciples for wanting to call down thunder on the Samaritans. Peter was rebuked publicly. I mean, these are uh, Paul, letter, Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthian church. These are rebukes. There are times when we need to be rebuked when giving in to our complex. And we need to be taught. Um, the, the way we get around this to help people is we teach them the Word of God. We, we flip their understanding on its head. We model it, like Jesus modeled it to the disciples with the Samaritan woman. We model it in the way we embrace other people that other people may not embrace. We, have, we live as a living example of what that looks like to welcome others. That's how we do it. Lesson three. Jesus is our right model for welcoming people, regardless of ethnic identity, gender, cultural and social customs, religious backgrounds, etc. Again, he was the model. The Samaritan woman had worshipped on a different mountain, had worshipped in a different temple, um, had different clothing, would have spoken a different language, uh, like you know, or or or, or a very if, um, if, if, or if a similar language at least that like a, you know had its nuances and so on and so forth in terms of dialect and slang and whatnot. Um, you know, there's a they would have liked different foods that have been very very different from her and him, and yet he welcomed her regardless of all these these boundaries, and we are to do the same. We are to do the same, but we have to get over the superiority complex in order to do so. Lesson four, and the final lesson. In combating the superiority complex, remember two things. One, all people have intrinsic value to God in that we're all image bearers. There's not some that are and some that aren't. All are image bearers of the Lord. And number two, every single person has been given life by the Lord. No life exists apart from Him. Those are two important things. And secondly, Remember where your citizenship truly lies. If you are a citizen of God, a citizen of heaven, living on this world, you will seek to do what the king wants. Jesus modeled how to embrace others of different groups and different cultures and different religions. He modeled that. He welcomed them. He would enter into conversation, teach them the truth about how to relate to God and love them in that way. He was welcoming to all. Now, some may reject him, but he was still welcoming to all initially. That's the way he engaged with people.
That means that we're going to have to break our cultural norms and our ties and our preferences and prejudices in order to engage others to be a blessing, whether that be in the society or right within our church at Genesis House. Because, again, if I'd be just curious about, on the cool, not cool list, if you've made distinctions within our own church family. So that's it for, for the message this morning. I would be very curious for your thoughts, and I pray that uh, the Lord has spoken to you today.